Welcome to Grass Talk Radio. This show is for people who play bluegrass music and anybody who might want to. The prison guard shut the iron door behind me. Howdy folks, howdy, and welcome to Grass Talk Radio. This is episode 150. Now, there are actually 159 episodes because I'm sure you also know that I occasionally put out bonus episodes. Well, in bonus episode 9, just recently, I talked all about, or I asked a question. I said, hey, why don't you send me an email, you the listener, and tell me who you are, and tell the rest of us who you are, and that I would read some of them on the show, and I read the first one in episode 149. Today, we're going to continue that. I've received, I don't know, maybe, I don't know, 15 so far, but out of the many, many listeners, I feel like I there's still a few of you who have not written in yet, so if you have not, I urge you to go listen to bonus episode 9, where I explain the whole idea and tell you what your options are and things like that, and I encourage you, if you haven't done so, to do so. Introduce yourself to me, tell me who you are, and tell the other listeners who you are. So today, we are going to hear one from a guy who's a listener, a fellow listener of yours, and uh, he took the trouble to actually record it, which I highly recommend that you do the same thing. I think it's more interesting to hear someone's email in their own words instead of hearing me read it. Um, but anyway, today we're going to hear from Dwayne Tamplin. And so take it away, Dwayne. Hey, Brad. My name is Dwayne Tamplin, and I am a recently retired educator in 2019 uh, with 31 years, uh, where I was a middle school principal in Decatur, Texas. Uh, I started my bluegrass interest actually when I started college, and I wore out the Flat and Scruggs album, uh, attempting to learn to play the banjo by teaching myself. And I progressed, but uh, many other things happened as life went by. And I have to say, uh, though, your podcast uh, it was a lifeline to me. And I was while I was trying to decide what I to do for my second act, I found your podcast, and I wait each week uh, for the new episodes. I really appreciate it. And your podcast has encouraged me to get back into the banjo and uh, trying to improve. Thanks, and I appreciate it so much, Brad. Thanks a bunch, Dwayne. I really appreciate you doing that. And I hope that more listeners will do like you have. And let's get to know one another here on the show. Okay, now moving right along. Today's episode is going to feature a young man, a young mandolin player by the name of Tristan Scroggins. In this episode, we're not going to spend a lot of time uh, explaining who he is and his backstory and his history and all that. In other words, we're not going to plow that same ground because a fellow podcaster over at the Mandolins and Beer podcast featured Tristan as a guest. So if you go to the Mandolins and Beer podcast, which I'm sure you can find quite easily just by searching for it on iTunes or Apple Podcasts or whatever, he's not hard to find, Daniel Patrick. It's a great podcast if you're a mandolin player. And it's interesting, even if you're not a mandolin player, by the way, I highly recommend that show. 
go to episode two. You might consider it maybe a prerequisite for listening to this one. If you don't know who Tristan Scroggins is, listen to episode two of the Mandolins and Beer podcast. So we kind of skipped ahead of that. So today I'm going to feature a conversation that I recorded with Tristan yesterday. And we did it over Skype and we had a little trouble hooking up um, due to um, confusion over the time zones. And between the time zones and the changing to uh, daylight saving time and all that stuff. Anyway, we, we finally got hooked up, but I kept having power outages at my house. And I don't know whether it was because it was a windy day or something, and boom, it would just go down. And this happened about three times right prior to us connecting up on Skype to record the interview. And then during the Skype interview, I think two or three times, it just completely died for some other reason. It wasn't power outage. It was just suddenly just got knocked offline. So we kept having to reconnect. So I had to do a little bit of editing. You know, if when you're in the middle of asking a question or answering a question and, and it all just suddenly stops and you're not quite sure where it stopped, you know, so you kind of have to pick up where you left off. Anyway, we had a little bit of technical issues getting, actually getting the interview, uh, but Tristan hung in there like a champ and said some very interesting things. And I, I've got a lot of respect for this guy in particular because he has a new mandolin book available that he put together and I saw it mentioned over on Mandolin Cafe and I was looking at it and I thought, you know what, I understand what, what goes into creating such things because as you, you all know, I've done quite a lot of instructional material books and that kind of thing. And so, you know, I kind of get it. And I, I wanted to just bring him on to talk about that and also to talk about uh, the difference between old time jams and bluegrass jams, because the book itself is a book of old time fiddle tunes for mandolin. So the, these are tunes that you would typically hear at an old time jam, the stuff that's popular among the old time Anyway, we get into talking about all that in the episode, so I won't, I won't waste any more time talking about it right now. So let's just go straight into my conversation with Tristan Scroggins. All right, so we're here with Tristan Scroggins live and in person. Well, not he's not in my kitchen. I'm talking to him via Skype, presuming the weather holds out. The power has gone out twice in the last 15 minutes. So Tristan, hopefully we won't lose you, but I saw on Mandolin Cafe that you have a new book of Mandolin tunes ready for the waiting public. And as a person who has spent uh, an inordinate amount of time producing similar materials, uh, I, I kind of understand 
the whole book thing, you know, and I, I've got a lot of admiration for anybody crazy enough to write a Madeline Tune book, and you have. So to begin, uh, just tell us about your new Madeline Tune book. Sure. Well, um, I, I've been learning a bunch of tunes lately, and a lot of them ended up being old-time tunes. And I, I've really enjoyed playing old time but for years i was really um intimidated by by old time i grew up playing bluegrass and um you know i i was really familiar with that genre but uh, i used to tour a lot and i i'd end up in a lot of places where there was a lot of old time and i made a lot of friends in that community but i'd always uh, feel pretty left out and kind of out of place if I was ever in an old time, old time jam. Or, you know, if I was at the American Festival Fiddle Tunes or uh, at a bluegrass festival or camp that also had a big old time component like Nimble Fingers or um, I, things like that. I, I don't mean to interrupt you, but I feel your pain. It it is, you know, they are overlapping circles. The old time and the bluegrass world, but I have found myself in old time settings and suddenly felt like I was from the planet Mars. I didn't know all the, I didn't know the tunes. They looked at you funny when you were chopping and, you know, it's like, it, it can be very weird, but you've obviously trekked around in both worlds. So I'm, I'm hoping that you can tell the listeners not only about your book, but also about kind of what those two worlds are like and how they're similar and how they're different. Yeah, well, so I I made this book of uh, melodies uh, of these tunes that came up a lot in different jams around all the places I went. Uh, part of that was because when I was looking for tunes, it was just really impossible to... There's just so many tunes and so many different versions, so if I was searching on the internet, there was no way for me to know which tunes were the ones that people actually played and so these these tunes were ones that um were really common in all the places i went and i included a little bit of history and um some sources for for the tunes some places that people could go and listen to a, a, a pretty early recording of the tune if not the first recording of the tune and then also a more modern version um so people could get a sense of what it sent actually sounds like instead of just being notes on the page yeah the book itself contains how many how many tunes there's 15 tunes uh and they're all uh written out in a pretty basic sort of way it's not really like an instructional book on old time just a transcription book of some uh really straightforward melodies for the tunes melody and chords and tablature and uh standard notation it was really hard for a long time for me to to figure out what to do in old time situations. Like yeah. you were saying, the right. chopping doesn't really work. And <laughs> there's so many things that are similar but different. I, I feel the same way about Irish music, where I, I really love playing Irish music, but I never know what's going to happen next. Like it, it's all the same notes and pretty similar, but but the language is just different and I never can anticipate what's going to happen next the way I can in bluegrass. Right. Right. 
so in old time I looked a lot for um, inspiration for other from other mandolin players, and there's 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 plenty of mandolin players in old time, but it's it's kind of it's it's not it's not the it wasn't the easiest for me to listen to recordings of other mandolin players playing old time, so I I ended up learning a lot from whenever I was um, out west being around Caleb Clotter, just because he's kind of the at least for me the like golden standard of of uh, old time mandolin playing and just kind of a traditional mandolin style and how to fit into to those different sort of settings and so that that was really helpful just kind of being around him and learning some tunes from him and being in jams with him and stuff and that helps yeah how do, how does the <clears throat> i could answer this but i want to hear you answer it uh, how does a bluegrass jam and an old time jam differ and the reason i'm asking this is because a lot of my listeners are relatively new to this and some people probably can't yet differentiate between the two and some jams kind of go back and forth in both directions but you know if you walk into a, a jam and it's a sure enough bluegrass jam how is that different and what do you do differently than the old time jam well speaking in in pretty um, broad and general terms um, the main difference that would come up is that in bluegrass jams everybody's usually uh, taking a solo over the different tunes or the songs and however you know there's lots of different ways that that might uh, take place but more or less everybody's taking a solo and uh, everybody else is listening to that person taking a solo yeah. for, for their turn. Whereas in old time, it's more uh, of a communal sort of, everybody's playing the melody at the same time, more or less. Um, this is uh, speaking very generally. Yeah, and, and the, the same is true in Irish Irish sessions. True, isn't it also true? Yeah, yeah. yeah. It's, it's more... It's more of this. It's there's less of a focus on individuality, and um, I, I don't want to say showing off, but but there's the very the variations are much more subtle and within this group context, um, and it can seem very confusing if you you're used to um, the etiquette of a bluegrass jam to be in an old time jam because for one thing i mean they just the, the tune goes on for a long time right. Right. you know and it it helped me understand it when i started being able to play the tunes and play the chords in that way that uh it's sort of zen almost it's very um meditative to just kind of get in the groove of this one tune and because there's not much changing, it's just um, you can just kind of get lost in the in the rhythm of the song and the the repetitiveness of it. Yeah, let me let me ask a, another question about old time jams. How frequently do you see people, let's say a bass player or a guitar player, um, 
or even a mandolin player, or somebody who's just literally just playing accompaniment all the time. Is that very common? I mean, I've seen it at some old-time jams, but I'll be quite honest, I don't go to many of them. I'm just not in that world, really. And But I'm just curious. I mean, do you typically have a bass player and a guitar, a couple of guitar people hanging around who aren't playing the melody? Yeah, well, and I'm, I'm also certainly not an expert in this field. I, I, I try to make that clear <laughs> in the book. That it's a book written by somebody who is interested and knows a little bit. <laughs> well, sometimes an outsider's view can uh, bring perspectives that cannot be had from the inside. You know what I mean? Because yeah. if you're attempting to learn to do it, you'll see things that maybe somebody that's been doing it their whole life wouldn't. Right. Well, so it's, it is, um, there's definitely people that just kind of play rhythm the whole time. And that's more common in, in other adjacent styles of music as well. Like, uh, like Texas style fiddle. Right. You know, there's, there's, a big part of that is just multiple people only playing rhythm. That's just the thing going on. And with the old time, there's definitely people that are just playing um, rhythm. And a lot of times that was what I would do because I, it took a lot of practice for me to be able to learn tunes quickly by ear while they were being played in a jam. Yeah. Uh, and I, I worked on that a lot because I wanted to um, be able to learn things in a jam really quickly. But in those, before I could really do that, I would definitely just try to figure out how to play rhythm in a way that would fit in. A lot of times I ended up playing um, something similar to what like a banjo uke might play mm -hmm. or um, not really a tenor banjo, but that sort of thing like this higher up rhythm that wasn't really or this these chords higher up on the neck in a strummy sort of pattern that wasn't really getting in the way of the guitar's lower register yeah um one thing i noticed and w when i initially emailed you uh, when i saw your new book and i was scanning through the tune the tunes and i I kind of very quickly, I read the title, Old Time Fiddle Tune Favorites. And somehow Old Time just went over my head. I was just thinking, you know, fiddle tunes. And so I'm thinking, I know what's going to be in this book, you know. And I uh -huh. looked at the titles, and I realized I don't know any of these songs. I could not play you one of these songs and yet I sort of have this <laughs> reputation as the guy with the big master list of the most common bluegrass jam tunes and I've you know got my jam session survival book and all that stuff none of these there is no overlap see when I in the bluegrass world when I think of old time I start thinking of Salt Creek and Sally Gooden and you know sure Angeline the Baker and stuff and I know some of those tunes do merge worlds but i i was like well i guess i need to order this book myself because <laughs> i would be lost if these if people are calling these tunes out and i would be embarrassed to say i don't even know any of these not one of those tunes do i know unless they also have a different title 
So I think you're doing a good service for people who might suddenly find themselves, you know, by chance or by design in an old time jam. Uh, <laughs> at least they'd have a leg up. Um, I, I want to ask you too: do you do you also have you notated the the chord progressions or the commonly accepted chord progressions? Yeah, they're they're in there, and there's there's yeah. some notes for each ones. If there's some some differences that might come up in jams for example um dry and dusty is in there and and that's kind of a that's um that's a tune that benny thomason made yeah i've heard texas guys in fact i probably got a couple recordings of that a few of these i rec or at least that one i recognize mm -hmm. the titles but you know still don't know the tunes i'm obviously not a texas fiddler but yeah well, and then, so the Texas versions are often a little bit different than the, the old-time versions, and the dry and dusty I put in there is is kind of a combination of more traditional versions, and also a lot of the versions that came up in jams were um, were similar to Brittany Haas's version that she recorded on her uh, debut record, um, and the chords she had some sort of some different chords to that yeah. and so i um i put those in there just in case you know because that's probably more likely to if you're like a beginner sort of old-time player the sort of jam you would be in would probably be more likely for those chords to come up well tristan tell the listeners how they can get this book and uh so they can get started learning these old time tunes. Well, you can uh, you can always go to my website tristanscroggins.com and you you can find it in there uh, along with some other there's some other uh, transcriptions and stuff that I have for free up there. Uh, it's being sold through Bandcamp which also sells some other of my stuff. It's it's just the uh, the web store I prefer, and that's tristanscroggins.bandcamp.com, and the, uh, it should be pretty easy to find the old-time book in there. Yeah, it is easy to find. I found it, so it must be easy, and I'm looking at that page right now, um, and for those of you who might be curious, it is an actual printed book. A comb bound, you know, a book you can throw on your music stand. I was curious when I first saw it mentioned, you know, was it an ebook, you know, a download or actual paper? And being kind of an old school dude, I I do like paper books, although I have stopped selling them myself. But uh, so you're, are you actually like collating and punch binding the books and mailing going? trips to the post office every day and all that like i used to do yeah i i have a little <laughs> i feel your pain machine. man i feel your pain i got one sitting right over here in the corner yeah oh, i also man. i i've spent the last um year this is unrelated i guess but i spent the last year working for um john hartford's family uh archiving a bunch of his stuff and one of the things that has sort of uh, uh, drifted into my sort of everyday life is his sense of like wanting things to be pretty deliberate. Uh, so I 
also I wrote out all of the titles and stuff in the book in this Spencerian sort of script that and I was practicing. You I, are <laughs> you are hitting on all cylinders for me. I, I mentioned in a podcast just a couple of episodes back that my good friend Mike Estes, who's a fiddle player I played with for years, gave me a copy of that Hartford's Mammoth Tunes book which I don't know how long it's been out. I think a couple of years. Um, and it re-energized my desire to uh, write more neatly and to handwrite tunes more. You know, I've, I've got, it's so easy to sit down in Sibelius and notate beautiful pages of music, but there's something to me magical still about pen and ink and I was curious did, did you also do some work towards the publication of that book I have I didn't do any work on the book but I sort of got involved with the family through the book because I kind of know a lot of the people that were involved in making the book right and then they just I, I don't even think it's officially released yet it's only been sent to the Kickstarter people but they made a record of a bunch of those tunes with a bunch of people from here in Nashville, uh, recording these tunes that John never really played for anybody and that are in the book. And that's called, Oh, it's, they called it something different. Um, but it, it, I think it's called save the tunes. And so I played on that. Um, but most of my job is just, uh, archiving a bunch, essentially his like, uh, journaling essentially and right. uh you're a very lucky guy i you know i would what i wouldn't give to be digging through his stuff like you're doing and you know that's a that's a real honor that a little feather in your cap i mean that's just not something that everybody is going to get the opportunity to do unless they build the john hartford library which i hope they <laughs> will one day that guy was amazing. I saw him play many, many times and have always been, you know, a, a, a big fan. And I still keep a banjo tuned in low detuning. Uh, <laughs> just, to, you know, I, I just love that sound. And he, he was and is an amazing dude. Yeah. No, he, he's, he was such a creative person and so thoughtful and, it, it is really inspiring to to sort of get to see his process of putting together things and, and seeing all the things that he worked on and never showed anybody because he was very deliberate about what he presented. And there's a lot of stuff that he worked on and just decided wasn't good enough right, to, right. to perform. I've got plenty of tunes like that, too. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, especially when you get into actual songs. I mean, I, the number of songs I've written that I would never play or sing for anyone is ridiculous. Because you know, you have to you have to make a lot of you got to have mileage, you know. And they're not all going to be good. It, I always tell people that you know, if you want to learn how to write tunes, sit down and write a hundred really bad tunes. And, you yeah. know, and you'll. Pretty soon you'll start getting better at it, you know. You said something in the in the Mandolins and Beer podcast that I heard that and I thought, now here's a kid 
wise beyond his years. And I, I'm going to quote you. You said, you only learn when you mess up. And boy, is that true. Maybe you, maybe you could tell some of the listeners how, how you may have messed up before, maybe. Or maybe you don't want to tell. <laughs> <laughs> I, I've spent 150-some episodes telling all the goofy things I've done wrong. But uh, I'm just curious. I, I like that philosophy that not everything a person does is um, like ready for the, the world isn't ready for it or, or, you know, or it was just a rough draft. You know, I'm not going to put that out. I, yeah. I got mandolin tunes that seemed like a good tune at the time, but then I look back at them and I play them. And I'm like, I don't know, just, you know, and other ones like they seem to write themselves and I just love them. And, you know, I don't know where they came from. Maybe you could talk a little bit about how how you you learn through your mistakes. Yeah, well, I, I think that I think that in general, having a a strong awareness of what you're doing and how it's going over, I guess, yeah, is um, is important. It, it, it's it's a difficult thing for a person like me who's pretty anxious to straddle the line of being aware of how people are responding to something and not feeling overwhelmed and never, you know, performing or anything because I'm afraid. I my roommate has been watching this TV show about Formula 1 racing and and there's there's kind of this thing where they're the, the drivers are going so fast and they're focused on just such a specific thing and everybody on the teams are focused on this really specific detail and there's somebody in the driver's headset telling them that they have to be going faster and yeah. that person is you know they have to intrinsically trust each other that that is a good decision but sometimes the drivers can't can't make it happen what i'm trying to say i guess is that there there's this thing where they have to have a certain amount of confidence where they're more confident themselves than they probably should be but not so much that they're going to do something that gets them killed they have to (laughs) well luckily you know I don't know many people. In fact, I don't know anybody that's ever been killed, you know, playing bluegrass. So that's, it's a little <laughs> safer, although it may feel just as scary. Well, you, you could, what I'm, what I'm, the analogy I'm trying to make is um, that you have to be able to put yourself out there. I, I think for being successful, you have to be able to put yourself um, a little further than you think that you can uh, and do a little more than you think that you can, but not so much that you totally spin out. But the only way to learn where your limit sort of is and how to push just beyond it is by pushing way past it. Yeah, that and, is brilliant advice. You know, I, I've how many times have you seen somebody at a jam, you know, just shaking off a break? You know, they're just, you look at them and, they, and they're and they giving you the no. And when they maybe ought to just go ahead and try it, you know. 
it yeah it might be a train wreck might not but but by passing every time it comes your way if you pass every time you're never going to know what you really could do yeah and in one of those big jams like the big you know jams where people are sitting in a circle and everybody's taking a break there it is essentially the lowest risk musical situation you could find yourself in and so there's no real excuse for not taking a break as long as you know, the, you really couldn't mess it up enough that it would be a big deal. So it's, it's, it's only really a disservice to yourself in that situation to to not take that opportunity to try something, because if ninety nine percent of it doesn't work, the one percent of it that does work, you're going to remember and be able to, you know, at least attempt to recreate at some point. Uh, that being said, that it also takes a certain amount of self-awareness to know that if you're not in a jam like that, that there's, you know, I, I'll certainly say no to taking breaks on certain things in certain places where I might be ruining the vibe potentially. If somebody's playing like uh, Choro music or something, I'm not going to try to to take a break, but. But in your in your just regular jam, you know everybody's rooting for everybody, and it's it's fine to take some chances. When you take that break, however it turns out, you at least come away knowing, well, you know, I stood up to the plate and I took a swing, you know, swinging for the bleachers, as they say, and you yeah. that builds confidence. Just knowing, you, I at one time I, I used to be in a Rotary club, and just on the. For some unknown reason, I stood up at the Rotary Club and sang a song a cappella, just me. And it was the old, uh, I had, um, I'm trying to remember, the, oh, it was the Salting of the Slug, Riders in the Sky. And I don't know what possessed me to do it. And the place, you know, just like 40 old men, they, they sat around and they thought that was the greatest thing that had ever happened. And I really just did it just to see if I had the nerve to do it. And mm -hmm. it worked out. But, um, you know, people have to press the envelope a little bit to see just how far it'll go before it breaks. Oh, I. I think that bluegrass required, at least bluegrass, and I can't really speak to other sorts of music, and it's, well, it's probably true in other sorts of music. Bluegrass, performing bluegrass takes a certain level of confidence. And I, I learned that sort of on accident just from growing up and being in a band with my dad, mm -hmm. who his style of playing was very, um, I don't know if there's a good word for it, but it's sort of in your face, I guess, but in a very like musical sort of way. So I was really fortunate to just sort of have that be my thing I was always aspiring to before I even knew what it was. But but I think, you know, putting yourself out there, the it's, believe me, I there have been so many times that I messed up so bad that I never wanted to play <laughs> again. Uh, and actually that's a little bit of an exaggeration because usually when I mess up super bad, it just makes me think, okay, I need to go practice. And then I go and practice a bunch. But every time that you put yourself out there and you succeed, it it is a huge boost to your confidence and you can do more the next time because- it, Exactly. 
And I, it's all, I mean, that's also speaks to being encouraging to other people around you too. You know, everyone's just trying to get better and have fun. And, and so it's important for you to also be encouraging to other people and, um, not make them feel bad about themselves because you wouldn't want someone to do that to you. So, well, you must have some good parents who raised you very well because it's, I don't often encounter relatively young people that seem to have the wisdom that usually takes uh, many decades to acquire. I mean, maybe one day, maybe you can talk your dad into uh, coming on the show sometime and I'll interview him and he can tell his side of all those mess ups and things. Um, one thing, you know, you were talking about, you know, the difference between bluegrass and old time and all this stuff. One of the things I always enjoyed and still do about and being in an actual bluegrass band is the planning, the pre-planning so that you knew before you ever got on stage, precisely what was required of you you knew when you do you were doing a kickoff you knew what breaks when they came and many many of the better bands i mean they've even got the backup lined out where you know behind the second verse second half second verse you're playing fills and then you got to sing this part and it's all super organized and planned and i always found that made it easier because at least i had a laundry list of my task, you know, this is my job, you know, fill that role where I get in a jam session sometimes and you don't really know what's coming next. You don't know what song's coming next. You don't know what key, you don't know what tempo, you don't know who's going to sing what, and you may not even know the tune at all. So I found bands to be actually easier, at least from a practice mentality to prepare for than jams. Jamming can be very difficult. Just knowing all the tunes or that might pop up can be tough, but you obviously have done a lot of both, um, a lot of performing and a lot of jamming. Does, does that sort of ring true with you? What I was, what I just said? Oh, definitely. I sort of went through this whole thing where I, I was, I felt really bad about my playing, because of my, I wasn't doing super well in jams. And I sort of eventually figured out that I was really good at playing on stage. And I was good in certain jams. Um, it, it, it became important for me to be able to distinguish for my own sort of self-confidence between the different sorts of jams that were out there. Like if I was you know, in a small sort of jam with like three or four people, um, I, that was fine. But if I was in one of those big, bigger sorts of jams and I took a break, it was often not a very good break. And it, it took a little bit of, um, of introspection or thinking to figure out that that, that was a, a different skill that I hadn't really worked on so much and and even there was crossover obviously but but they um they required a different sort of 
thing. I couldn't just do what I did on stage right. or in a smaller jam in that bigger jam or in a one-on-one situation. And you know, I just have been fortunate to be in a lot of situations, a lot of different situations and sort of gotten to figure out the nuances of those different things. But they're all, you know, everything's different. And it's when you're practicing, you're sort of practicing for for those different situations. And in a jam, a huge part of what you're learning, what you would practice for that is not only improvising, but anticipating what's going to happen next and being able to listen to all the things that are happening. Whereas on stage, there's a lot, there's not as much um, uh, uncertainty, like things are pretty, pretty set in stone. And well, to some extent, in in some cases, but you, so your focuses are a lot, are a lot different. They're a lot more on performing and even just the way that you would arc if you were improvising a solo on stage, the way that you would arc it would be probably different than it would in a jam, just because the purpose is different. You're right, performing. right. I'm with you on that, and and that's that's the thing that you know I always found that to be easier. I, I've said many times to, you know, a person that's been playing a couple of years, start a band, just start a band, start making a song list, start working stuff up you're going to find that you play better with a little bit of planning or, you know, because if you're just going to wander into jams, it's always, there's a great deal of the unknown facing you. And some jams are magic and some are just drudgery, but with a band, you, you can control that and build, you know, build as a group, you know, build all of you up because it's repeatable, you know? Um, before we close this out, tell people again the title of the book, where they can get the book, and uh, and how to you know follow you. I know you've got an Instagram account and some other things, so just rattle that stuff off, and I will put links to those for you regular listeners who know how to get to the show notes pages. Just go to grasstalkradio.com, slide down to this episode, and click that link. And I will um, embed links to these things so that you can, you know, if you're driving in a car and you you don't have a way to write this down right now, you'll be able to go there and get your own copy of this book. Got I got to help support, like I said, anybody crazy enough to write a mandolin book. <laughs> so tell them, tell them once again how do they how do they follow what you're up to, you know, your performing, and in particular how they can pick up that book. The book is called Old Time Fiddle Tune Favorites, and you can find it on my Bandcamp page, which is tristanscroggins.bandcamp.com, and you can find the link to that as well on my website, tristanscroggins.com. My website also links to a lot of my uh, sort of outward-facing profiles and things, like on Instagram and Facebook, I put up a lot of, and YouTube, I put up a lot of videos of me playing tunes and talking about tunes and things, as well as my email list, which I talk a little bit more about the different things I did each month. I also have a Patreon page uh, where I uh, talk more about the tunes and do 
lessons and live streams and um, and give uh, give out transcriptions of a lot of the different tunes that I learn. And uh, you can also find me performing. I don't tour as much as I used to, but I still go out sometimes. And I teach at a lot of camps, and I'm at a lot of different mandolin camps this year. And you can find all that on my website. And, um, Very good. I, I think that, that does it. I want to say... It's a pleasure to meet you and talk with you. Um, it's it's encouraging to see, you know, young folks. I mean, you're not that young. You're not 12 years old or anything. How old are you now, Tristan? I'm 25. 25. Oh, I remember those days. Yeah. Um, but anyway, it's it's good to meet you, and I appreciate you coming on to the show. And hopefully, we can do this again sometime. I really really want to say on behalf of the audience too thanks for doing this well thank you bradley i i really enjoyed talking to you and uh, and uh, thanks for for having an interest in in my stuff I, I, yeah you bet uh, you know got to help each other out that's the way i look at it anyway thanks yeah. thanks a bunch yeah thanks bradley By the way, that little segue music you heard leading into the interview was Tristan Scroggins uh, from his album, I believe it was on the album Fancy Boy. And that's the old song, Home Sweet Home. He does a great job. He's a very good mandolin player. And uh, so we're going to end the show uh, with a little bit more of that track. Tristan, thanks a lot for coming on and doing the show and I recommend that all of you mandolin players scope out his new publication and y'all have a great week and I'll talk to you back here next week on the next episode of Grass Talk Radio. <laughs>